Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Well, we're in the last message. Uh, we've gotten in the cars, and we're going to head toward the book of Revelation. Remember when we talked about in the last message that uh, Paul wrote the letters to the churches, and then he wrote a handful of letters to the leaders, and now these are non-Pauline epistles. They are written to a general populace, primarily to a Jewish audience, and they are called the general epistles because they're not to a specific church. James uh, indicates that he's writing to the 12 tribes that are dispersed among the nations, but these are not to like the church of Galatia. These are letters to the general church that would have been circulated around the church, but primarily to Jewish believers, and it's to answer a question. Now that you say Jesus has come as Messiah, what about all those things in the Old Testament? What about the covenants and the laws and the ceremonies and the priesthood? How does Israel fit in now? How do Jewish believers fit into this church that is no longer uh, just one race of people, but it crosses all lines? And how do we mix with the Gentiles? How do we worship with the Gentiles? Because our customs and our norm is different from what we are experiencing now. And so let's jump right into the book of Hebrews where he talks about the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. And I want to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We'll not take time this morning to look at all the key words and the key verses. They're there in your notes for you. But Hebrews chapter 4, he sets this stage for the supremacy of Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to circle two phrases there in those verses that are significant. Hold fast and draw near. There are things we are to hold fast to, and there's one we are to draw near to. We are to hold fast and to draw near. This is the the, the distinctiveness of Christianity. These Jewish believers ha have understood that Jesus has come as Messiah, but they're trying to figure out, are the offerings and the sacrifices still necessary? They are being pressured by zealots and by religious leaders in the Jewish community that you have to still be Jewish to be a Christian, to still go through all the forms, or that, uh, that you need to keep the laws. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Christ is supreme above all that. He's the capstone, all that. He's what all of that pointed to. And he addresses three specific matters. First of all, Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrifices and prophecies. The writer of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus came, as you study the Old Testament, you find Christ 
throughout the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the sacrifices. All the sacrifices pointed to Jesus. All the prophecies pointed to Jesus in one person at one time, in one man. All of these were fulfilled. Not only does he write them to tell them that, but he writes them to warn them about turning away from the gospel. In other words, going back and adding the law to it, going back and adding forms and religious exercises to it, and turning away from the simplicity of the gospel of the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's warning them, don't go backwards. And in fact, the book of Hebrews, you see this phrase, let us move on, let us go forward towards spiritual maturity. The gospel is what you build on, it's not what you back up from. And so he talks to them about not turning away from the gospel, then to urge them to keep moving forward in their faith. So what is he doing here? He's saying to them, grow up in Christ and grasp who you are in Christ. Not only are we to grow up in Christ, let us go on to maturity, but we are to grasp who we are in Christ and who Christ is for us. That one of the key words in Hebrews is that word better. He's a better priest. He's a better covenant. He's a better sacrifice. He's better than all that went before him. And, and this book is written to explain Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The just shall live by faith. How do we live by faith? The, the problem with these Jewish believers was that they were much like the Old Testament wandering Israelites. They could see the promised land and knew it was something incredible. But out of a lack of faith, they stood on the wrong side of the Jordan River. They did not move forward in their faith. Now let me give you a statement that I want you to write down somewhere where you can keep it. How you respond determines how you live. How you respond to the gospel, to Christ, to the Word, to the Holy Spirit. How you respond determines how you live. In other words, if you respond at a low level, you will live at a low level. If you worship at a low level, your worship will be very elementary. If you study your Bible at a low level, if you understand Jesus at a low level, that's great to be there, but grow up and move on. Move toward maturity. Don't stay where you are. Keep progressing in your faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we have a choice. We can look to Jesus or we can look back. And the only reason to look back is to see that Jesus is better than what came before him, and so we look forward to Jesus. Hebrews is always about looking forward, looking up, looking ahead, moving forward. It is a book of progress. Now in Romans, remember, Paul revealed Jesus as the only way. In Hebrews, the writer reveals Jesus as the better way. Both are giving the same message. Paul says he's the only way, and he is, the writer of Hebrews says he's the better way. And so let's look at three things. First of all, he is the new and better deliverer. Chapters 1 through 7. He's the new 
and better deliverer. Moses was a deliverer, but not like Jesus. Moses led them out. Jesus leads us in. He is the new and better deliverer. Calvary is the new and better covenant because it was a once-for-all sacrifice. We don't have to come and offer sacrifices. You didn't have to show up for church today with an unblemished lamb and with all kind of uh, bird offerings and lamb offerings and all these things. You You didn't have to do that. The blood has already been shed. The sacrifice has already been made. So he's the new and better covenant. And then faith is the better principle to live by. Chapters 10, verse 19 and following. Faith is a better principle to live by. In other words, I don't have to live by, did I keep all the rules today? Did I get my do and don't list right? What I live by is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live and walk by faith. And so 12 times in the book of Hebrews, we see this phrase, let us. He's writing to the corporate body, let us move forward not departing from the living God. So that's the book of Hebrews. James through Jude are practical teachings that demand personal application. James and Jude give us practical teachings that demand personal applications. Now the four apostles have been described as follows. Paul was the apostle of faith, telling us what faith is, what it means to live by faith, to walk by faith. John was the apostle of love. John talked about love. You see it in the gospel of John. You see it especially in the book of 1 John. Peter was the apostle of hope. And James was the apostle of works. James was not the apostle to say, well, you work your way to heaven. He was saying, when you have faith, then you will have works to verify it. So let's look at the book of James. James is a belief that behaves. It's the Proverbs of the New Testament. Faith and works are almost equal in the number of times that they appear. And so James says, if you've got saving faith, prove it. Let it show up. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts. They're not there in your notes and they're not going to be on the iMag, but let me give you a couple of thoughts about this kind of faith. First of all, faith is patient in trials. The life of faith is patient in trials. If you ever hear anybody say, I just wish I had patience, (laughs) then they're going to go through trials. Because trials teach us to be patient. And we have to be patient in our trials. And that takes faith in God. Secondly, faith is always accompanied by works. You say you have faith, I look at your life to see if you have any works. If there are no works, then I would say that there's no faith. Because faith is always accompanied by something that you do, by your living out and acting out on that faith. Thirdly, genuine faith will control the tongue. Now that would kill most churches right there. Because it means that slander and gossip and backbiting and all those things that you find among God's people sometimes would be non-existent. When a person gossips and slanders and backbites and speaks evil of someone else, here's what you can know. They're not operating by the faith principle. 
They're operating by, I want to be in control and manipulate and control what people think about other people. They're not operating by a faith principle if they can't control their tongue. I heard the story about a lady who came to the preacher one Sunday, and she said, Pastor, I want to put my tongue on the altar. And he said, it's not big enough to hold your tongue. <laughs> said, your tongue could reach from the fellowship hall around the kitchen and come back into the worship center, and you'd still have room. Now, I've met that woman. <laughs> I've been in churches where those kind of people exist. And you know what? You'll never see unity in a church that allows that kind of talking. I'm not talking about uniformity. I'm talking about in church, our opinions really don't matter. What I think really doesn't matter. What I feel really doesn't matter. What God says is what matters. And he says, if you've got faith, you'll control your tongue. Next thing... Prayer is a vital part of the life of faith. So if I'm not using my tongue to run down somebody, what am I using my tongue for? To pray. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The average church member in America prays less than, this is in, across all denominations, prays less than two minutes a day. Now, we talk on the cell phone more than two minutes every two minutes. <laughs> and when we talk a lot more, if you add up, here's, here's a test for your prayer life. Add up your cell phone minutes this month and look at how much time you spend in your prayer closet. And if the cell phone is longer than your prayer closet, you weren't praying enough and you were talking too much. By the way, do you realize that if you quit talking about people, it would cut your cell phone minutes in half? If you just quit talking about people, well, you know, I heard. Well, I just think. I just, some of you are going to try to find out, you know, what's going on with, with next Sunday. We're having this long service next Sunday. What's going, and you're going to be asking, 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 do you know what's going on? Do you know what's going on? Is there anything going on I need to know about? Is it, and rather than asking, just pray. I guarantee you, you'll come into a much better worship service next Sunday when you do that. First Peter describes how we respond to sufferings and trials. And Peter talks about a living hope and a living word and a living stone. Now, here are the doctrines that Peter emphasizes in the book of 1 Peter. First of all, he talks about the doctrine of the sacrificial death of Christ. He points out very clearly that Christ died not for his sins, but for ours. He points out the sacrificial death. He points out the doctrine of salvation in chapter 1 and verse 23. The doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of redemption through the blood. There is no redemption unless it is through the blood. That's God's design. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. The doctrine of the resurrection in chapter 3 and the doctrine of the second coming in chapters 1, verse 7 and chapter 5 and verse 4. Second Peter, he's talking about how to spot money-hungry leaders. And boy, I tell you what, you don't have to watch much religious TV to realize where this letter is coming from. You would think Peter had access to all the TV preachers that we see who tell you if you send them money, they will pray for your healing. Can I tell you something? You've got direct access to Jesus. That guy can't pray any better than you can. Amen. Keep your money, pay your doctor, and talk to Jesus. Amen. It's cheaper, 
and it works better. He's talking about how we deal with people that are money grabbers. So this is not a new problem. This didn't just happen when religious television hit the stage. This didn't happen under Elmer Gantry. This has been going on for 2,000 years that people look at the gospel and say, now there's a way to make a living. There's a way to make money. And it's a lack of discernment. This book is very similar to 2 Timothy, where the heresy in 2 Timothy was among the laity. The heresy in 2 Peter is among the teachers. So between 1 Peter and the writing of 2 Peter, which was a gap of time, something has changed. In the first one, there's persecution on the outside. In the second letter that Peter writes, there's now heresy and false teaching on the inside. In fact, the greater problem for the church is not persecution coming from outside. The greater problem for the church is a watering down or heretical teachings on the inside of the church. So here's the central theme. The central theme of 1 Peter is how you handle suffering. The central theme of 2 Peter is what you do with knowledge. How you handle suffering and what you do with knowledge. So I want to ask you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, a very familiar verse, and then we're going to look at chapter 2. 2 Peter 1.20, and then 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. Peter, who was an eyewitness to all the miracles. Peter, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, who saw the resurrected Christ, writes to these believers, and he says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, it's not what you think it says, it's how it is related in context. It is how it is related to the people that it was written to. All that we looked at as we studied how to study your Bible, it's not a matter of what I think. It's a matter of what God says. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's the divine inspiration and infallibility of the Scripture. Chapter 2 and verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. One who is alive today said on his program a couple of years ago, I need you to help me buy a Gulfstream jet. It's $30 million, and I need you to plant a gift into my ministry so I can spread the gospel. One of my staff members said, you know, Delta is ready when you are. He could fly around the world every day of his life for the next 3,000 years and not spend $30 million. He just wanted something out of his greed. Be careful where you spend and invest God's money. Because some people are just trying to make their lives better at your expense. And they've got more money than they know what to do with, so they own planes and trains and automobiles just constantly moving along 
at the expense of others. They need to, this is what he's saying, that the people needed to know their salvation. They needed to know their Bibles. They needed to know their adversary. And they needed to know their prophecy. These were important truths that Peter is trying to nail down, that they know their salvation, that they know their Bibles, that they know their adversaries, what they're up against, and they know what prophecy says. Now we come to 1 John. 1 John has five purposes in writing. As he writes this short epistle after he's written the longest of the Gospels, John, toward the end of his life, writes 1 John, and he tells him he has five reasons for writing. Number one, that they might have fellowship. Chapter 1 and verse 3. That they might have fellowship. One of the characteristics of a church that you need to look for is fellowship. Is there good fellowship among the brothers and sisters in Christ? Secondly, that they would have joy. That's verse 4. That they would not sin. And when they sin, that they would know that they have a mediator, a lawyer, an advocate in heaven who's never lost a case. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That they would overcome error, chapter 2 and verse 26. And that they would have assurance. That they would have assurance. Now you can build 1 John around three words. There are a number of key words listed there, but let me tell you, John gives you three words to build around in his book. Light, life, and love. Three L's. Light, life, and love. And in Building around those three words, he, he builds around the difference between love and hate, light and darkness, and between truth and error. And so he gives us three tests for believers. Here, here's the question. How do you know if you're saved? How do you know that you know that you're saved? First John said, these things have been written that you might know. So how do you know? How do you have a no-so faith? K-N-O-W. A no-so faith. He gives three things. First of all, obedience. You are obeying what God says. I don't know if my decision was real or not. Are you obeying God? Yes. First test. Second test, love. I just have a problem loving anybody. Then you might need to check if you're saved. Because you can love your enemies. That's what Jesus said, love your enemies. Some of us have a hard time loving our friends. Obedience, love, truth. Am I following the truth? Am I obeying what God says? So when John writes this letter, he's talking about three things that you look at in your life as you look in your spiritual mirror. Are these three things evident? I'm not talking about your perfect I'm talking about a sense of direction, what Hebrews said, going on, moving on in maturity. Is obedience to the word, is love for the brethren and love for God, is obedience to the truth, doing what God says, is that evident in your life? If it is, then those are evidences of a true believer because you can't make yourself do those things and you can't work up love for people that you don't have. Second John is a personal letter. We often skip 2nd and 3rd John in our study of the scriptures because we think, let's just get on to the book of Revelation. But 2nd John is a personal letter. And I think it's a great letter for parents to study because my opinion about 2nd John is it's one of the best books on discernment 
that you can teach your children. Because John is writing to a woman in the church, a sincere, godly woman, and he's giving her a warning. He warns this woman and thus warns us, be careful who you let in your home. Hospitality is good. It's a gift of the Spirit. But be careful who you show hospitality to. You see, if you're overloaded with mercy and with kindness and lack discernment, you will let things into your home and into your life that will be detrimental, not beneficial to your family and to your faith. And so if he were writing this letter today, he would say this, watch what you watch on television. Be careful what you listen to in your music and in the radio. Be careful how you think. Be careful who you hang around with. Be careful what peers influence you because you will become like the people you spend time with. And you will develop a worldview based on what you allow into your home. And so he's writing to this woman and he's saying, you need to pay close attention because there's a group inside the church that is vying for influence and this lady didn't want to offend them and she was being nice to them and so these false teachers were taking advantage of her. Now I'm not on the TV preachers, because I are one. I'm not on them pounding that drum today, but I just want to say, not everybody on television that uses the name of Jesus is preaching the Jesus of the Bible. They're preaching a version to help them sell books and make money and build bigger ministries. And so they say what people want to hear. And they will say what makes people feel good, not what makes people be holy. So you have to have discernment. I've had people tell me they like me and another preacher, and that other preacher doesn't even have any theology. He's never been to college. He's never taken a Bible class. He wouldn't know theology. He doesn't know if it's spelled with a T or a the. You can't listen to me and tell me that that guy and I are on the same page. In fact, we're not even in the same library. I don't even know what book. He's, he holds it up and he says, we believe it. And then he puts it down and never refers to it again. Now, let me tell you something. If you listen to him, all you got was a good pop psychology, feel good, scratch my back where I itch, soft sell that's going to send you to hell thinking that you know Jesus because it makes you a better you. And God didn't die to make you a better you because you're better as you. God died so that he could get inside of you and get the you out of you so you'd quit looking like you and start acting like him. Amen. And if somebody's not telling you that, they're not telling you the truth. Jesus didn't die to put a fresh coat of paint on an old barn. He came to build a new barn. And, and so you got to be careful. And our bookshelves are loaded with them. Our own Lifeway bookstores, owned by the Southern Baptist Convention. You walk in there, and except for the love dare, you got everybody under the sun, and they don't believe doctrinally 10% of what we believe as Baptists. But their books sell. 
And you know what? They sell to Baptists who don't have any doctrinal discernment. That's why you need to know the Word, because when you're reading those kind of books, you ought to sit back and go, whoa, that doesn't look right to me. And it shouldn't look right to you. When a TV preacher tells you that the Trinity has nine people in it, you ought to have enough sense to know the Trinity can't have nine. Trinity means three. And when he tells you that women used to give birth out of their sides, where in the world did he come up? Find a doctor that will go with that. And he's warning this woman, don't embrace it just because somebody says it's in the Bible. Study it. Evaluate it. I expect you to evaluate what I say. I don't expect you to say, well, he's a preacher at Sherwood. You know, he must be right. You ought to study your Bible enough to know if I'm right. And if I'm not, and if I'm preaching error, then tell me I am or find a church that's not. But don't just sit and listen because somebody, that's when you do that, folks, you end up moving to another country and drinking Kool-Aid. Don't walk into church brainless. Listen. Pay attention. Because the teacher is doubly accountable, James says. And you're accountable for listening to the teachers that you listen to. Then we come to 3 John, which is a letter of encouragement. I don't know why y'all got me off on that. John is a letter of encouragement written to three people. Gaius, commending him for his work. Diotrephes who was a guy in the church who wanted power and prestige and influence, and then Demetrius, who's pointed out as an example of the truth. Jude is a book that deals with apostasy. He talks about contending for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. His warnings are similar to 2 Peter chapter 2 and 3, and there are three marks of apostates. Number one, they are ungodly. They are ungodly. Number two, they turn the grace of God into license or immorality. They turn the grace of God into license or immorality. They say, well, since we're under grace, just do whatever you want to do. And number three, they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're in the book of Revelation. Revelation, Jesus' triumphant return is the hallelujah course of the Bible. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. Revelation 1, 19. This book is the unveiling, the unveiling of things which have been before hidden, and now they are unveiled for us. Revelation 1.19. And Revelation 1.19 is actually an outline of the entire book of Revelation. When you read chapter 1 and verse 19, you have got the entire outline of the book of Revelation. Look at it. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will be take place after these things. Here's the outline. Things which you have seen. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Those are the things that you have seen. The things as they are, chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 22. That's what they were as he was writing to the seven churches of Revelation. And then the things which are to come, chapter 4 through chapter 22. Chapter 4 through chapter 22. So there's your outline of the book of Revelation. Things you have seen, things as they are, things which are to come. Now I want to give you seven reasons. We're going to go a few minutes 
long here. I want to give you seven reasons why Satan hates the book of Revelation. Seven reasons why Satan hates the book of Revelation. Number one, it reveals the reign of Christ on this earth. Right now, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. <laughs> he wants to control. He's going to lose control. Secondly, it tells us of Christ's complete and final victory. It tells us of Christ's complete and final victory. So you can just write by there, Satan, you're a loser. <laughs> Three, it describes the defeat and punishment of Satan. Satan doesn't want people that listen to him to know that he's headed for destruction and for doom and for punishment. Number four, it shows that God is sovereign. Satan's not going to overrule. God is sovereign. Number five, it shows that nothing and no one can stop God's plan for this world. Number six, it shows God's kingdom will come. Whether men like it or not, it's on God's timetable. And number seven, it ends with the devil being written out of the story. It ends with the devil being written out of the story. And so this book gives us a threefold blessing. This is the only book that you read in the Bible that says that you get blessed when you read it. You say, I can't get blessed. I don't understand it. Just keep reading it and ask God to show you what it says. First of all, blessed is the one who reads it. Blessed is the one who hears it. And blessed is the one who keeps it. You are blessed when you read it, when you hear it, and when you keep it. Now, look this way for just a moment. When we moved into this building the 1st of March, eight years ago, we had 72 hours where we read through the Bible before we walked into this building. On that Sunday morning as we walked in, we finished just before the downbeat with the reading of Revelation chapter 22. My wife, Terry, Tom Sanders, and I were the last three people to read the scriptures on that day. 72 hours around the clock, we read the scriptures. We had staff members that would stand over here and would pray with the one who was about to read a chapter or two chapters out of the Bible. They would come to the pulpit and they would stand and pray and then they would leave. And for 72 hours, we read the Bible in this room. The Bible that we used is stationed exactly under this pulpit right now. It is open to Psalm 119, which is a revelation of the Word of God and how precious the Word of God is. That Bible is opened and laid out because it is a reminder to me every Sunday when I stand to preach, I'm not here to preach Michael Catt. I'm here to preach God's Word. Amen. I'm here to preach what he says, whether it makes me comfortable or anybody else comfortable. I'm here to preach the non-compromising message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Bible is under here. In this square, there are scripture verses written all over this platform, under the carpet in the worship, uh, in the choir room, all around in the back back here. There are scripture verses all along the front underneath this carpet. There are scripture verses that were written by a choir and by deacons and by Sunday school teachers and staff. Right here, where I stand, is a box that I reserve for me that's six feet wide. 
I wrote in quotes from men of God that I respect, and I wrote in scripture verses. But right here where I stand, and some of you are new here, so you don't know this. Others of you know it. But right here where I stand, I have a quote from Charles Spurgeon that says, Let him who stand here and preach not Jesus be accursed. Ladies and gentlemen, whether I'm the pastor or 10 guys from now of Jesus tarries or the pastor, you have a biblical obligation that the man who stands in this pulpit preaches Jesus without apology. That is your moral, your ethical, and your biblical obligation that that man preaches Jesus. In our Constitution and bylaws, it says that if any person on the staff, any pastor, or any Sunday school teacher ever says that they do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, they will immediately be removed from their position of leadership because no one can be in a position of spiritual leadership in this church that does not believe in the inerrancy and the authority of God's Word. That's what it says. That's what we mean. So I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And then I want to give you one last little thought. Revelation chapter 5. And I want to ask you to stand for this if you would. Revelation 5 and verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let me describe the Bible to you in one sentence. From the beginning in Genesis, it says, come Jesus. In Revelation, it ends with saying, Lord Jesus, come. Come Jesus in Genesis. Matthew, he has come. Now it ends with saying, Lord Jesus, come again. Come and take your bride. Come and take your rightful place. Come and take your throne. This book, from page to page, is about Jesus. It is about him being lifted up and him being exalted. And when you hold this book in your hand, you are holding the written revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. From Genesis, where we find in Genesis that there was a blood sacrifice required for the sin of Adam and Eve, all the way through to the book of Revelation, where they sing, Blessing and honor and glory be to God for what he has done. This book is about Jesus. If we don't lift up Jesus, if we don't sing Jesus, if we don't worship Jesus, if we don't preach and teach Jesus, let us be accursed. And let God move off of this church and leave us to ourselves. Because if we don't lift him up, we don't have a reason to come back. But if we lift him up, He said, when you lift me up, I will draw men unto me. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, 
you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.